Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all your families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so I come again, so that I come again to the Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give give a full tenth to you. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to New King. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you came out on this cool fall day. We had to turn the heat on this morning for the first time, so uh, it's a little cool. So today, I am going to teach you about this story that if you grew up in the church, you may have heard about before, this story of Jacob having a dream and Jacob's ladder. Not you, Jacob, but this is a different Jacob. So we all have this picture in our heads of this ladder, and the angels are going up and down it, and they got big smiles on their face, and they got big wings and all that. If they got the wings, why do they need the ladder, right? So I have something deeper to teach you about this morning, something more profound. And uh, I trust the Lord will be with us as we dig into this passage because it is a beautiful, wonderful passage. And uh, let me just ask God's help and pray one more time before we jump right into it. Uh, Father God, help us this morning to understand this passage Our hearts are so hard. We struggle with so much about you, Father. Just have us have open ears this morning to hear what God is saying in this passage. Help me, Father, to teach it. 
Help, uh, help us to understand it. And Father, I pray that you would apply it to our hearts. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis 28, first book of the Bible, chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you on the rack. Just grab that. So I got to tell you a little bit about the background to start off. Jacob comes from the most dysfunctional and messed up family that you can imagine. It is an utter, messy disaster. Some people say, you know, when you talk about all these characters from the Old Testament, I kind of resonate with Jacob more than anybody else because he's so messed up. And my life isn't perfect, and his life Oh, my word, far from perfect. In the previous chapter, in chapter 27, um, we see that his brother Esau goes to his father uh, and says, Jacob cheated me twice out of my birthright and my blessing. And it's in verse 38, it's one of the saddest things. Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father, for me? Bless me even also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. I mean, that's heartbreaking. He's crying to his father and weeping. Oh, father, don't you have a blessing for me? And what does the father do? Isaac gives a blessing. And if you read through it, it's an anti-blessing. It starts out, away from the fatness of the earth you dwell. Who would do that? Who would give their son an anti-blessing? It's almost a curse. So you have Esau, and what is Esau's response? Look at verse 41 of chapter 37. Now Esau hated Jacob. He despised him because of the blessing. And he says, listen to this, he says, the days of mourning of my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob, when the old man kicks off. That's what he's saying. The old Jacob, the old guy, Isaac, he's going to kick off. When he does, I am going to track my brother down. I'm going to kill him. Is this a happy family? <laughs> it's a disaster. And then Rebecca, Jacob's mother, hears about it, and she schemes with Jacob. Let's, let's, let's scheme, let's figure out a way. And she says, you got to run. you got to flee from your brother. you got to run away. And then she says to her husband, a different story. She manipulates. She schemes. She pretty much lies about it. And then in verse 46, Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life. Oh, my word, what a disaster this is. Every single person is messed up and dysfunctional. And this is where Jacob grew up, right? It's a disaster. And then we finally get to chapter 28. In the first couple of verses, Isaac calls Jacob, and he says, okay, I've listened to your mother. You've got to go away, back to Haran. You've got to find a wife. And one of the saddest verses is down in verse 5, 28, 5. Then Isaac sent Jacob away. 
If you know anything about this story, Jacob was desperate for his father's love, desperate for a relationship, desperate for affection. And his father sends him away. And off he goes into the wilderness. And that's the background of this story. So now we're down into the portion that Izzy read this morning, verses 10 through the end of the chapter. It says in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Again, he is fleeing for for his life. He is running away from a brother that wants to kill him. His father has sent him away. His mother has lied about the whole situation and misrepresented it. Jacob is despised. His brother hates him. He is desperate for his father's love and affection. And he's destitute. Do you remember... I preached on this way back in the 24th chapter when, when it was time for Isaac to get a wife. And his father Abraham said, no, I, I don't want you to go. I'm going to send the servant back and we're going to get a wife. And the servant went, and do you remember what he went with? Ten camels loaded with riches. And what does Jacob have? He's got nothing. How do I know this? One of the reasons is when he finally gets to his uncle Laban, he's got to work seven years because he doesn't have the gold and the silver for the dowry to give him. And then it turns out to be seven more. He's he's destitute. So, So this man is despised, he's desperate, and he's destitute. And in verse 11, verse 11 is a literary masterpiece. The author of Genesis, in one verse, describes a situation with an economy of speech which is amazing. And there's three things that come out. Look at verse 11. He came to a certain place and stayed there the night. Where did he go? Where was he? The place didn't even have a name. He's come to this nameless place. He's come to nowhere. He's nowhere. That's what the author is trying to get us to see. And it's night. And it says, uh, and he stayed there the night because the sun had set. Now, if you know anything about writing, the setting of the scene, the sun goes down, darkness is now coming. And it's, a, it's almost a metaphor for Jacob's life. He's alone, he's desperate, he's desolate, he has nothing, and the sun goes down, and it's dark. Do you remember in the New Testament When Judas was given the piece of bread by Jesus at the Last Supper, he took it and it says, he went out. And John's gospel says, and it was night. And we all should go, oh, it's night. So he's in a nowhere place. The sun sets. Night has fallen on his life. It's nothing but darkness. But there's one more thing. A rock for a pillow. What does it say? Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head. He lay down in that place, that nameless place, to go to sleep. A stone for a pillow. He didn't have anything. Now, anybody that's been out hiking or been out, you want to have a pillow. You do anything for a pillow. 
You take your backpack and you sleep with it if you don't have anything else. You take your sweatshirt and you ball it up and you lay your head on it. He had nothing. That's what the author is trying to get us to understand. He's in a nowhere place. He's got nothing. And he makes a rock for a pillow. Way back in 1965, who was alive here in 1965? Anybody other than me? A couple of people? Uh, a couple of guys wrote a song, and it turned out to be fairly famous. And uh, it kind of goes like this. He's a real nowhere man living in a nowhere land. Isn't he a lot like you and me? That's Jacob. Holy smokes, that's Jacob. There he is. He's in a nowhere place. He's a nowhere man. He's got nothing. And he's a lot like us in a lot of ways. So now we come to the next part, the dream. Okay? In the middle of, or at the, at the beginning of verse 12, it says he dreamed. So he falls asleep. What kind of a dream would you dream if you got a rock for a pillow? One of my favorite dad jokes of all time, and I've probably already said it here, is um, I dreamed last night that I was eating a giant marshmallow, and I woke up and half my pillow was gone. Ha, ha, ha. Jacob has a dream, and there's three parts to the dream. He sees three things. It says he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, a ladder. He sees a ladder. Now, the Hebrew word really is, we, we often translate it ladder. It was really more of a ramp or a bunch of steps going up. Because, you know, a ladder, it's kind of hard for angels to, to get their footing and they're trying to crawl over each other. So it's a wide ramp kind of a thing with steps on it going up right? That's what he dreams. He sees that. And, and again, if you were here way back when we talked about uh, the Tower of Babel, back in Genesis 11, remember the people said, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to make a tower to heaven. That was a common thing back in the culture of the day. Archaeology has found that they made these ramps to connect earth and heaven. Jacob dreams a dream, and he says, there's a ramp. There's a ladder. There's a stairway to heaven. Some other guys wrote a song about that that became pretty popular too. It's an axis connecting to worlds. It's a portal connecting two different worlds together. They meet at this spot. That's what Jacob dreams about. So that's the ladder. That's the first thing that he sees. The second thing he sees, uh, it says, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending. What is that all about? The angels of God are God's emissaries, and they're going up and they're going down. They're royal emissaries. They're sent by the king, by God himself, and what is the purpose of it? The purpose for Jacob is God is doing business. He is working. There are things happening. He is controlling things behind the scenes in a way that we can't see. The angels are coming and going all the time. 
In 2 Kings 6, the prophet Elisha, in one of his many conflicts, he's facing a large army. His servant looks at the large army and he says, alas, alas means there's no hope. And Elisha prays. And he prays for the servant's eyes to be open. And when he does, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. There were angels all around, and he couldn't see it until his eyes were open. Same thing here. Jacob's eyes are open, and he sees a connection between heaven and earth, and God is working. His emissaries, his royal emissaries are coming and going. And the third thing he sees, he sees the Lord. The Lord it says at the beginning of verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it, or beside it. Some translations say beside it. I think he was right there beside Jacob. His presence was right there. Because afterward, as we read a little further, it said the Lord was in this place. He was right there. He was standing above it all. And Jacob sees those three things. In this nowhere land, this nowhere man's eyes are opened. And he sees there's a connection between heaven and earth. And God is doing business. He's working. He's not just interested. God is not just looking down, interested to say, hey, what are these guys up to? No, he's at work, and Jacob didn't even know it. He didn't even see it. And he's not distant. He's not far off. He's there right beside him. He's with him. God is working in this lonely, desolate, place. You might want to say it's God forsaken. That's just the opposite. God is right there. Now we come to what God says. So Jacob's still having the dream, and now we have God speaking. In middle of verse 13, he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. He makes the connection. I am the God of your father's. And then he repeats the covenant blessing. He repeats it. And he says, okay, the land on which you lie, I'll give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. Remember all our teaching in in the book of the patriarchs here. It's all about land and seed. He repeats all that. You're going to have this land. You're going to have a lot of children like the dust of the earth. And he says, you're going to be uh, to the west, to the east, to the north and the south. And your offspring will be a channel of blessing to all the earth. So he repeats all that. And I kind of think Jacob says, "Uh uh-huh, I've heard all this before. He probably heard it his whole life. Maybe you grew up in the church. And you've heard all this stuff about Christianity your whole life. You say, yeah, 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 I've heard all that. And it didn't sink into you. It didn't mean anything to you. But let me tell you, what God says to Jacob next sinks in. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, he says something new. And he makes three unbelievable promises to Jacob. This is new ground we're treading here. He says, behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. 
I will bring you back to this land. And then he sums it up. He says, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I am with you. I am with you. This is God's personal presence that he tells him. I am with you. Secondly, I will keep you wherever you go. I will preserve you. I will protect you. Wherever you go, I will preserve you. I will keep you. I will protect you. And thirdly, I'll bring you back. It's going to be a homecoming. I'm going to bring you back. There's going to be a homecoming. So, Pick your head up. Think about this for a second. What is the scene here? Jacob's sleeping. He dreams all this. It's like God, the Lord of the universe. Maybe you've done this. Have you ever snuck into your kid's room at night when they're sleeping and looked down at them in their little bed and given them affirmation of love and affection. This is what God is doing. This man is asleep. God is standing over him, giving him unconditional promises of love. He's speaking into his life. He's speaking into his heart in this desolate, nowhere place. He shows up and he speaks promises of love to this man. That's what he does. That's who God is. It's no different today than 5,000 years ago when this happened or whenever it was. He speaks promises of unconditional love. And oh my word, does it get Jake's attention. It's okay if I call him Jake, right? We think we're starting to get to know him. It gets his attention. How do I know this? A little bit later, Jacob makes a promise and he takes these three things and he sort of rewards them to make them applicable to his life. We're going to see that in a minute. That's what got his attention. That's what got his eye was the personal presence of God. He had an encounter with the living God as God stood over him as he dreamed this dream and God spoke promises of unconditional love. Now, how does Jacob respond? Okay, time, we're doing good. Thank you. Okay, verse 16, um, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I didn't know it. Jake is in this lonely, desolate place. He's a fugitive running for his life with nothing but the clothes on his back. And God is there. That is exactly where God is. And Jacob says, I didn't know it. Much to his surprise, God is in such a lonely, desolate place. There's a lady here at New King. And uh, last week, she got called into the doctor's office. And you know how doctor's offices are. They're kind of cold, desolate places. You're sitting there on the table with that paper thing there, and you've got this gown that won't tie in the back. It's about as lonely and cold and desolate as it gets, and then the doctor comes in and sits down. When the doctor sits down, it's not good. And he tells this woman, you have cancer. You have stage three cancer. What do you do? This woman told me 
I have never in my life felt God's presence in that desolate room than before. He was there with me. I could hear what the doctor said. I could understand him. But I felt the overpowering presence of God to still my heart and give me peace in a way I never have in that cold, desolate place with the worst news ever. That's who God is. We shouldn't be surprised. Jacob says, I didn't know it. We shouldn't be surprised. You see, that's what God doesn't just show up in these places. God is drawn to these places. And I'll talk about that a little bit in, in the future. So, and then what happens? So he says, um, the Lord's at this place. I didn't know it. And then verse 17, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is none other than the gate of heaven. I'm taking a class uh, this semester, uh, my third one in biblical counseling, and this past week was um, looking at fears and anxieties, fears, and we all have them. And the course taught that we are controlled, often we're controlled by our fears. We, we submit to our fears, and they control our life. We, in a way, we bow down to, him, to the fears. And then it says here, Jacob was afraid. The course taught that when we have a fear, we need to reorient it. We need to change the fear. And Jacob's life now begins to reorient a change of direction so that instead of fearing his brother, instead of fearing the family that's so messed up, he now has a healthy fear and he fears the Lord. You ever heard that before? Listen, listen. Gospels, New Testament Gospels. Remember the story of the the disciples in the boat and it's a storm? You remember that story? And Jesus is asleep in the the bottom of the boat. He's just laying there sleeping, and they're terrified. The storm is raging. They wake him up. Master, aren't you going to do anything? They are terrified for their lives. And Jesus calms the storm. He says, peace, be still, and the seas stop. What is the first thing the disciples say? We're afraid. Wait a minute, I thought they were terrified. No, they were reoriented, and they said, who is it? Who is it that can speak and calm the wind and the waves? It's Jesus, it's God. So you get reoriented, and this is what's happening here. From the fear of the circumstances, the fear of his brother, all of a sudden he now has a healthy fear, and it's awe. I can't even believe it. He's awestruck, just like the disciples were in the boat. And then verse 18 and 19. Early in the morning, Jacob, he wakes up. Uh, he took the stone that he put under his head. He set up a pillar poured, um, on the, and poured oil on the top of it. He makes this altar. And, and what happens is the nowhere place is transformed. 
it becomes the house of God. Bethel means the house of God. If you've ever been in the car riding with me, anytime we get close to Bethel, Vermont, I always say the same thing. Bethel, house of God. My wife says, yeah, I've heard that a million times. My kids says, I've heard it a trillion times. You're a dad. That's what you do. You just repeat yourself. Bethel, the lonely, desolate place is now transformed into the house of God. And what happens next? Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow. So he makes this vow. And some, if you look and listen, look up in, in Bible commentaries or listen to uh, sermons on this chapter, they almost all say the whole thing. Yeah, this is Jacob. He hasn't changed a bit. He's trying to make a deal with God. This is the schemer. This is the deceiver. He hasn't changed at all. I disagree 100%. I'll tell you why. A vow in the culture of the Old Testament was a promise made that, guess what, reorientates your life. It changes your direction. And I think it should be read, instead of Jacob making this thing, he says, if God will be be with me, I think it should be since God is going to be with me. I think he's, he's listening to what God says, and he takes those three promises, and he makes them personal. Notice what it says in verse, 19, uh, verse uh, 20. Jacob made a vow, made a promise. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. See, he was destitute. He had one set of clothes. He didn't have anything to eat. So he says, if God will be with me, if he'll keep me on the way. Remember that part? If he'll give me food to eat and clothing to wear. And then notice what he says. This is really touching. So that I come again to my father's house in peace. That's the homecoming he longed for. He wanted to be reconciled to his father and his whole, the whole house to his brothers. And he said, God, you're going to do that. Since you're going to do all that, you're going to be my God. It's not if, it's sense. His life now has changed direction completely. And we have two testimonies to prove. You say, Eric, you're crazy. He's just make no, his life has changed. How do I know? At the end of this section, he does two things. He puts his faith into practice. He shows that his life has changed. He worships and he gives. He worships and he gives. Listen, he now makes this altar. He now worships God. He recognizes them for who he is. He recognizes that he's the God of promise. He's the one that's there in this desolate place. And then the very last part of it, and all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth of it. Jacob, the heel grasper. Remember, that's what his name means? The heel grasper. The grasper is now the giver. Jacob, the one that all he cared about was his own self, is now the worshiper. His life direction has been changed by an encounter with the living God. And it's played out practically. Practically, He worships and he gives. The nowhere man is now transformed. It's only the beginning. He's still kind of messed up. It's a process. It doesn't come to a complete head until chapter 32 where that 
Odd story is he wrestles in the middle of the night. Another odd story. We'll get to that in a few weeks. So the nowhere place is transformed. The nowhere man is transformed. Jacob was running for his life, despised, desperate, and destitute. God is there in the nowhere place, and he transforms the place and the man. How do we understand it? What do we do with this today? It's time to talk about the application. You with me? Everybody with me? We got to go to the New Testament. We got to go to John's Gospel, chapter 1. If you don't understand what's going on here, you got to look at John, chapter 1. Uh, could you put that up? Yeah, thank you. So in verse 43, we have this, this scene at the beginning of John's Gospel where, where John is gathering his disciples. He's starting his public ministry. And it says in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. He said to him, follow me, right? He's gathering people. He's gathering a following. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Uh, Peter found Nathanael. So, so one of the things that we see in John's gospel is people, they follow Jesus and then they invite others to go with them. That's the model, right? So he finds his, his friend Nate. He says, Nathaniel. What does he say? We have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he says, we found the one we've been waiting for. We found the one that's going to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. And what does Nate reply? Nazareth? That's a nowhere place. Can anything good come from that town? It's like, you got to be kidding me. When I, uh, when I uh, was a pastor of the church in Panton, I was talking about this uh, particular verse, and I said, it's like Ferrisburg. I was only kidding around. It's like Ferrisburg, and I said, can anything good come out of Ferrisburg? And there was a lady that was new to the congregation, and she heard that. She says, well, I'm new to the area, and she wrote it down, watch out for Ferrisburg. Don't go to Ferrisburg. This summer, I happened to run into her, and she brought it up, and she said, you know, Ferrisburg isn't all that bad, (laughs) right? Ferrisburg's not so bad. Nate says, that's a nowhere place. Can anything good come come from there? Can anything good? And Philip said to him, come see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward... Now, this is fascinating, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, connect us immediately with Jacob. He was the man of deceit. His whole life was about deceit. And now Jesus, and, and he was the one that showed up in the nowhere place. So there's starting to be connections back to this story if you have eyes to see it. So he's like, here's a guy with no deceit. He's a straightforward guy. He's not perfect. Don't think he's a sinless guy. He's a guy that's living his life in a very straightforward manner. You can believe what he says. He's trying to keep the law. He's trying to do all those things. And Jesus says, oh, here's a guy, an Israelite with no deceit. And Nate, Nathaniel, responds, yeah, that is me. That you, that, how do you know me? Uh, I, I, that, that's who I am. That's my personality. How do you know me? And then Jesus says, before Philip called you, 
when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't know what Nate was doing under the fig tree. Nobody knows for sure. Some Bible scholars say, well, a fig tree is a sign of blessing for a family, and maybe that was his spot where he was going out daily to pray and to, and to read the scriptures, and it was a place where he could have communion with God, right? And, and, and some of us have places like that where we have our quiet time. Maybe it's the same place in the house. We go, we read the scriptures, we pray, and it's a time to meet God through the scriptures and through prayer. Maybe that was it. Or maybe, and I don't know, maybe Nate's family was messed up. Maybe Nate's family was dysfunctional. And he was going out under that frig tree to get some space, to flee from a functional, dysfunctional mess in the house. Doesn't say, but I wonder. And Jesus said, I saw you. And Nate's response is unbelievable. Rabbi, it says in verse 49, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Whatever Jesus saw was so, that the fact that Nate saw it, or that Jesus saw what Nate was doing, was so shocking to him that he immediately changed his life. He immediately did it. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And I think it's because Nate was under that fig tree, crying out to God, desperate, desolate, in despair. And Jesus says, I saw you. I saw you. Now what happens? Jesus says, oh yeah? (laughs) I love it. I think Jesus has got a sense of humor. He says, uh, because I said to you, look look at verse 50, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than this. I love it. Jesus says, you think that's cool? You think I saw you? You think that's something? I'm going to show you something even greater. And what is it? Now we see the full connection to the Old Testament story thousands of years before. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 51, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God. Of man. Where am I in my notes? You are going to see heaven opened. You are going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on a ladder, on a staircase, on a ramp. No, no. No, you are going to see the angels of God, Jesus says, ascending and descending on me. That's what he says, and that makes all the difference. You're going to see them ascending on me. Why? What does it mean? It means two things, and this is how I'm going to sum it up. Number one. Heaven is open. What year are we? 2023? 2023, October, heaven is open. See, for for Jacob, heaven was closed. 
all these promises were made to him. Here's what you're going to do, and it didn't work out at all. So heaven was a closed door to him, and he flees off into the wilderness. And the first thing he learned is heaven is open. It's the thing that, that this guy in the New Testament learns. Heaven is open. It is not a closed door, right? Heaven is open. Maybe you've heard about God. Maybe you've heard about Jesus. And it just seems so distant, so unattainable, so irrelevant in this day that we live in. And you say, I've never had an encounter with God. I've never had anything like that. (laughs) To be quite frank, my life's kind of a mess, if we're honest. God doesn't appear to me in dreams. I don't see heaven opened. Heaven is open. Maybe, Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, and you heard the gospel. You went to church over and over and over. And it's like, yeah, I've heard all that. Maybe you grew up in a broken home, completely dysfunctional. Where is God in that? Is that you? The message is heaven is open. And God is standing over you. And he's whispering his promises to you. I am with you. I will take care of you. I can't wait to gather you in my arms and bring you home to the Father's house. How do I get there? How do I get that encounter with God? How does it become real in my life? I don't even feel him. I don't even see him. It's so distant. I am just in this place that's so far from God. How do I do it? Jesus is the latter. The angels are ascending and descending on him. You see, when we think of religion, most religion says, man, before I meet God, I better clean myself up. And there's a bunch of steps I got to do. Religion is all about Steps. It's a ladder. You get to heaven by climbing the ladder, and in the hand you hope, well, in the scale of balance, I hope God accepts me. You do certain prescribed things. Those are the steps. The Ten Commandments of Israel were a bunch of steps. The five pillars of Islam, they're steps to God, and you go and you perform them and you get close to God. Buddhism, Buddhism has the eightfold path of enlightenment. They're steps to God. Christianity is the only one that's different. Jesus says, I'm the ladder. He doesn't see you'll see, he doesn't say you'll see angels descending to the Son of Man. It's not a bunch of a bunch of steps to get to the Son of Man. Jesus said, I am the steps. I am the connection. I am the access between heaven and earth. It's me. There aren't steps. There, aren't, there isn't a performance that you have to do. Every religion has a what and a steps to do. 
Christianity is the only one who has a who, Jesus. And he did the steps. He lived the life that you cannot live. He died the death that we deserve. He is the the access between heaven and earth. The access of heaven and earth is over his dead and resurrected body. He has done it for us. And that's the orientation you have to have. Instead of looking at all this stuff as a bunch of steps to get to God, you look at Jesus. You look at the cross and say, he's done it for me. You've got to have your eyes open and you say, I don't even think I can do it. You've got to look to Jesus. Jesus is saying in this passage in the New Testament, if you understand who I am and what I've done, Heaven is open to you. (laughs) It's open to you. I didn't come to show you the steps. I didn't come as an example. Well, if you be like Jesus, God's going to accept you. I am the steps. I've done it for you. That's the difference. And when you see that, I guarantee you will have an encounter with God and your life will be changed. Your life will be changed. It happened to me. It happened to almost everybody here that I've talked to. The stories are amazing. Somehow God broke through. Oftentimes it was a time of utter despair. And all of a sudden, I looked in this place and God was there. And someone spoke to me about Jesus and I realized that I needed to look to him. Jacob was despised, destitute, and desperate, wandering in lonely, nowhere places. That was the life of Jesus. Do you understand? Why is he in those places? Because that's where Jesus was. He had no money. He had no place to lay his head. He was hated and despised by the people around him, even his own family. (laughs) He walked the path. He knows. God just doesn't show up. Jesus just doesn't show up in the lonely places. He's there already, speaking over you like a father to a child with promises of everlasting love. Don't you see? Jesus took all those things. He's the stairway. It's not what you have to do. It's what he's already done done. Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. And that's what I invite you. Come and see Jesus for who he really is. He is the stairway to heaven. He is the only one. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this ancient story of a ladder to heaven. We thank you that it points us to your beloved son, Jesus. Father, help us to see him for who he is. Open our eyes, Father. Help us to see that even in our despair, God is in this place and we didn't even know it because those are the paths his son walked. Help us to see Jesus as that access between heaven and earth. Help us to see him in his suffering and death. Help us to put our faith in him. We pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.